chapter is all about healthy church leadership. Paul was writing to his apprentice Titus that he had left on the island of Crete, instructing him to install elders, pastors who can lead the church. And then the second and third chapters are about the Christian life that we can all live, and if we live it faithfully as a church together, we can strengthen the church together. So you could, you could really summarize the book of Titus if you wanted to as simply a, a formula, a formula for a healthy church. And, and this is the formula. Healthy leadership plus healthy Christians equals healthy church. How do you get to a healthy church? You bring healthy leadership and you bring healthy Christianity. And that is how you find a healthy church. Now, all of the sermons up till now have been about healthy leadership. Most of them have been about pastoral leadership. We saw from chapter one, the need for many pastors in a church and what sort of men should be taking the role and how they have to be trustworthy and what their teaching must be like and their role in confronting false teaching. And now we're kind of in the middle and all the weeks after this week will be about the Christian life, how to live a healthy Christian life. What's the role of a Christian older man or an older woman or a younger man or a younger woman? How are we all supposed to live? How can we live in graciousness toward our neighbors? How should we treat the governing authorities? All sorts of aspects of the Christian life that, if lived, can make a healthy Christian life. But this week, we're in the middle of the two. This sermon is unique because it is aimed directly at those of you who teach the Bible in our Sunday school classes and our discipleship programs or those of you who mentor others. And those of you that are students in those kind of classes, I pray that it helps you as well, helps you to know just what to expect when you go to a Sunday school class, just what to expect when you go to a Bible study or when someone mentors you. What it gives, I think is clarity on what our job is as teachers and how to do it well. And that's what I'm praying the Lord gives you through this. We're going to look at a smattering of verses in chapter 2, all of which have to do with Titus's teaching. If you have your worship order open, the whole chapter is there, and the verses we're looking at today are in bold. If you're using your own Bible, you'll want to know that it's chapter 2, verses 1, 7, and 8, and 15. It's the beginning, middle, and end of chapter 2, verse 1 verse 7 and 8, and verse 15. Let's read these verses together. Verse 1 says this very simply, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verses 7 and 8 say, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good work, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and a sound speech that cannot be condemned, so an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And finally, verse 15 says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. What God gives us in these words is a picture of healthy Bible teaching. And I'm praying that through it, God will encourage you, those that endeavor to teach the Bible to students, and those of you who mentor others as well. I pray also it will bring help to those of you who learn from our Bible teachers to value what they do and to know just what you ought to expect when you go into a class. The concepts that we'll talk about here will be familiar if you've been here for the rest of this series. 
And in fact, the words even in, in the verses, even some of the phrases in the verses will be familiar if you've been here for the rest of this series, if you've read the first chapter of Titus before. What's different is that these words are aimed again directly at those of you who teach in Sunday school, in Bible study, and in mentoring. The reason they're different is because of the way verse 1 starts. I think that verse 1, for me personally, is the best statement I have found as to what my job is as a Bible teacher. And I hope it will be that for you too. I hope it will clarify for you when you sit down to teach someone the Bible, what exactly is your job? What are we doing here? It starts off with these words, as for you, right? So the whole first chapter was about pastoral leaders. It was about pastors, elders, overseers. Now Paul shifts his focus to Titus. Titus's main ministry in Crete was to teach. He was Paul's apprentice there, Paul's delegate left there on Crete to bring the churches to maturity. But he was not a pastor and he was not an apostle. Most of what he did was just teach the churches how to function in a healthy way, teach the Bible to the church leaders, teach the Bible to everyone in the church. So you have someone here who is not a pastor, doesn't have that positional authority that goes along with the pastor, but is charged to teach the word of God to people. And so the charges that Paul gives them then, that's why they are so helpful for those of you that teach the Bible regularly or mentor others, but don't have that stamp of pastor on you while you do it. You still open the Bible and you still teach like Titus did. One of the things that kind of sets panic into us as teachers is, you know, let's say you get asked to substitute teach in your Sunday school class. Or let's say that uh, you've heard about mentoring and you're thinking, you know, God has made me a mature Christian. I really ought to start mentoring some younger Christians. One way or another, you get into teaching the Bible or into mentoring someone else. And you realize, wait, what am I supposed to do here? Like, I could kind of follow the pattern of the teachers before me and open the book and talk about it and explain it. But like, what's the job here? How do I know if I've done the job well? Is it if more people come back to the class or if the people tell me I did a good job or what exactly is my job here and what am I doing? This can be even more awkward if you get into mentoring for the first time. And some of you are there right now, I know because you're telling me. Some of you are hearing about mentoring younger people and you're wanting to do it. And what you're asking yourself and even asking me is what, what exactly do I do? Like I want to get in on this, but I don't know practically what it is that I'm supposed to be doing. Well, this verse can give you a mission statement. It can remind you exactly what it is that you are doing. Paul looks to Titus and he says, as for you, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. If we can unpack that phrase, it's telling you everything that you need to know about what you were doing and why you were there. You were there to teach what accords with sound doctrine. So what does that mean? Well, we've seen this phrase, sound doctrine, before in the book of Titus, and it's elsewhere in the New Testament. It's a phrase that the New Testament writers would use often to talk about the gospel itself, the core message of our faith. The word doctrine means the content or the message of what you're teaching. It's not the style or the, or the medium that you're teaching on. It's not whether your sermon's on YouTube or whether it's audio. It's the content and the message that you're teaching. That's what doctrine is. 
And the word sound means healthy and reliable. Your car's engines can run right now if you want them to because they're sound, they're in good shape, they're healthy, and they're reliable. That's what got you here. A boat that doesn't have any cracks in the hull, but we know it can float, that's sound, it's reliable. Someone who's in good health and is able to do all the things a person in good health can do, they're in sound health. Their doctor will tell them they are in sound health. And so literally the sound doctrine is good, reliable teaching, the reliable word that gives life. And when the writers use that phrase together, sound doctrine, they mean the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reliable word that you can build your life on. The sound, healthy, life-giving word that if you will receive it will give you new life and will flourish your spirit until the Lord brings you home to him and finally makes you completely new. The gospel of Jesus. Maybe you've never heard it before. If you've never heard it, let me outline to you what the gospel message is. This is the core of what we believe here at Calvary. The core of what all Christians believe. The gospel means good news. And one way you could put it is that the greatest need we have, God has already provided for us fully if we will receive it. Now, we have a lot of needs. God provides for all of our needs. But we have one need that we may not even recognize, but is greater than all the others, and that is the need for forgiveness from God. By living in rebellion against him, we have set ourselves against God. If a husband or wife betray each other, they are in need of forgiveness of their, from their spouse. And because we have chosen not to live God's ways, not to live in worship of him, though he has made us, though he has put good ways down for us, we are in great need of forgiveness before him. The good news is that he has provided for this already. Any who will turn and receive it, he holds it in his hand. He says, I have sent my son to earth to die to pay for sins. And to rise from the dead, to conquer death, to conquer hell, to conquer all of his enemies for the sake of his people. He says to anyone who would turn and would trust him, he says, I offer that forgiveness freely. I offer that victory over death freely. If you are in need of victory over the death that looms over you and will come for you one day, and you are. If you are in need of forgiveness before God, and you are, I want you to know, friend, that it is freely available to you. All you must do is turn to Jesus and receive it. God is a consuming fire toward those who turn away from him and refuse to follow him. But he is tender-hearted and merciful to all those who will turn back to him. So friend, turn back to him. Receive that forgiveness. Receive that victory over death that will be yours forever. And what you will find is forgiveness for your every sin. You will find eternal life on the last day when Jesus returns. He will raise you from the dead and you will live with him in a renewed body forever. And a mountain of blessings beside that I wish I had time to go into for you. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And if you have never turned and received it, I call you right now. Turn from your life. Turn from your sin. Turn from all you trust in and believe in. And place your faith upon Jesus Christ. Find new life there. Find eternal life there. Now that's the message. When he says sound doctrine, that's the message he's talking about. That's the sound, reliable word that you can build your life on. Jesus says, anybody who hears these words of mine and does them is like the one that builds his house upon the rock, right? The rains come, the floods come, the winds blow, they beat on the house and it doesn't fall because it's built upon the rock.
a church that is built on that message is the same way, right? A virus comes, you can't worship inside of your building, whatever persecution someone might be afraid of comes, financial hardship comes, whatever comes, and it beats on that house. But if it's built upon the rock, right, it can stand, it can last. On that message, we build ourselves and we last. I'll call you build yourself on that message. That's the sound, reliable, life-giving word. But notice what Paul says. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see that there in verse 1? Now, he had told the elders to give instruction in sound doctrine, but to all teachers, he says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What's that mean? Well, if you turn to Jesus in that way and you place your trust in him, there is, as I said a moment ago, a whole mountain of blessing that comes along beside that. This is kind of like when you get married, and hopefully you got married if you did get married because you desired the spouse to be yours and they desired you, you wanted to belong to each other, and so you got married. But you probably found at some point in the engagement or at some point quickly when you were married that a whole mountain of stuff came along with that spouse, right? Her crazy family is your crazy family now, right? His crazy kids are your crazy kids now. All of that junk in his garage is now your junk in your garage. Like there's a whole mountain of stuff that comes along with the spouse that you received in marriage. That's just how it works, right? And not only that, but a whole story, like their story is your story now. Their baggage is your baggage now. You're getting so much more than the spouse. You got into it because you wanted the spouse and you got that, but you also got a whole mountain of stuff beside it. Well, Coming to Jesus is that way too, except all of the stuff is good. You come to him, and hopefully you're coming because you want him. You want to be reconciled with him, with God. You want God to be yours again. But you get alongside of that a whole mountain of blessing. You get a new heart that longs to walk in his ways. You get God's spirit dwelling in you, teaching you the fear of the Lord. You get a whole new belief system. You spent your whole life wondering what is true. What is the truth about who humans are and what is real and the spiritual reality and what are we all supposed to be doing? You've wondered about these things and had to kind of pick and choose between what's around you. Well, now God says, here's the truth, all of it right here in the Bible. You've got a reliable belief system now. You've got wisdom that you can walk in that will bless your life. You've got a whole new lifestyle that comes with it. There's a whole mountain of stuff that comes with the gospel. We call it new life, new life in Christ. Believing the truth, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and walking in his ways. And in that life, there is so much blessing. It is so good. That comes with Jesus when you receive him. And that stuff, that all of that new life and new belief system and everything that comes with the gospel when you receive it, that's the stuff that Paul is talking about when he says what accords with sound doctrine, what goes along with sound doctrine, all of the stuff surrounding it that you receive beside it. That's what you get when you come to Jesus. Bible teachers, he says, are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. We are to teach the new life, the new everything that comes along with the gospel. And there are many ways that you can word that. One thing that I think helps for any teacher, I would recommend any teacher do this, is to take that concept 
and find some simple way of saying it that's easy to memorize for you and rolls easily off your tongue. Some way of saying, I teach from the Bible all of that new life that comes along with the gospel. Some simple way of saying that and just commit it to memory. The way that I say it is helping people follow Jesus. I stole that phrase from a book title from Mark Dever. I, I think it's an easy way to explain what it is that you're doing when you sit down in a Sunday school class, you open the Bible, and you're teaching them. What are you doing? You're helping them follow Jesus, and you're using the Bible to do it. But there are many other ways you could say it. Maybe there's a way that resonates a little better with you. Maybe you say, uh, I open the Bible with people, and I teach them how to live the Christian life. Or I show people what following Jesus looks like. Or I help people walk with Jesus. Or there's so many ways you could say it, right? But from the Bible, you are teaching people what the Christian life looks like. Christian truth, Christian deeds, what Christians believe, and what Christians do. You could even say, I teach Christianity, right? That's a simple way of saying it. If one of those resonates with you, just lay hold of it and say, okay, I'm going to take that phrase, that's mine. And every time you're getting ready to teach, you can just remind yourself, what am I doing here? Oh, I'm helping people follow Jesus. I'm using the Bible to help people follow Jesus. What am I doing here? Oh, I'm teaching the Christian life to people, and I'm using the Bible. You could even begin every Sunday school class with the same phrase, welcome to the such and such class where we open the Bible and we learn how to follow Jesus together, or something like this, to keep everybody on the same page for just what it is that you do together. The Bible's way of saying it is teach what accords with sound doctrine. My way of saying it is helping people follow Jesus. What's your way of saying it? How do you put it? Whatever that is, lay hold of it and hang on to it. This is also true, by the way, for those of you who are getting into mentoring. You're wondering, what exactly am I trying to do here? It seems like there's some kind of one-on-one meeting aspect to it. I probably need to bring my Bible. I figured that much out. But what do I do when there is this person who trusts me and I'm evidently supposed to be advising them in life? Well, if a goal of the whole thing is to teach to them the Christian life, which you have presumably been living for longer than they have, to use the Bible to teach them what the Christian life is looking like, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's what you're doing. Let's move to verses 7 and 8. Okay, verse 1 was what we're doing when we teach the Bible. Verses 7 and 8 give you help to do that. What we're doing is teaching the Christian life. 7 and 8 give us two commands that if we follow them, it'll help our teaching. And it gives us the results of those commands. Let's look at the structure of those verses together. You'll see one command to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And then the word and, which joins it with the next command, in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So those two commands are joined with the word and. Then you see the word so that. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So the logic is do these two things and the third thing will happen. Do, do this and this so that this will happen. If we model good works and if we teach in a certain way, opponents will be put to shame and they won't have anything to say about us. That's the logic there, separated by those phrases. The first command there is to show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. If you are teaching them what the Christian life looks like, then you have to show them what the Christian life looks like. 
if you're telling them what it means to follow Jesus, you also have to show them what it means to follow Jesus. The key idea here is modeling. It says to be a model of good works. If you were to go to a local community college or technical college and take a woodworking class, there's a good chance that the teacher in that class would bring a model of the project for all of you to look at. Let's say that he wants to teach you how hinges work and how drawers work and how dovetail joints work. And so we're all going to build our own jewelry box. Well, he's likely to bring a completed jewelry box and set it in the middle of the class and say, come up and look at the model as much as you want to, right? See how the hinge opens just like this? You want to see how this drawer comes in and out just like, here's how the dovetail joints look. He's going to do two things for you. He's going to give you instructions on how to do it and he's gonna give you a model on what it looks like. Now, everybody wants to get their jewelry box right, but it's especially important that the teacher get the model jewelry box right, right? Like if he gets one of those hinges wrong and it's a little wobbly when you open the hinge and it doesn't stop in the right spot, every student is gonna have a faulty model to look at. And the best they could reasonably hope for is to get it as bad as the teacher got it, right? They can't hope to really get it better than the teacher got it if they don't have a good model in front of them. So it's important that everybody try to get it right, but it's doubly important that the teacher get the model right. That's how important a model is in a class. It influences everyone in the class and shows them what it's supposed to look like. Well, Paul's saying here that if you teach the Christian life to people, you are the model you can't help but bring a model to class with you. Your life is the model. And if it's important that everyone get this right and we all live the Christian life in as healthy and sound of a way as possible, well, it's doubly important that the teachers get it right. It's doubly important that the teachers walk in righteousness and show us what good works look like. Otherwise, we have a faulty reference to go by. How hard would it be to learn humility from a teacher who is prideful? How hard would it be to learn self-control from a teacher who had an anger problem? It wouldn't work, right? It would be like learning to make a good hinge on your box from a teacher who had made it with bad hinges. Well, in the same way, you must be a model of good works to your students. What you do seven days a week is just as important as what you say one day a week. And in fact, if you know that in your teaching you need to get a little better at studying and you need to get a little better at saying it, but you also know at the same time that there is a nagging habitual sin that you need to make progress on and conquer. I want to tell you that making progress on that sin will make just as much a difference, if not more of a difference in your effectiveness as actually getting better at the act of teaching. Don't fall to the temptation of putting all of your effort into getting better at teaching and neglecting the secret life that you live before God because you have to model good works in order to teach well in order to see effectiveness in your teaching. So he says that is the first command. Show yourself to be a model of good works. And he says this in contrast with the false teachers. Back up with me to chapter 1, verse 16. There were lots of false teachers in Crete. That whole paragraph is about them. I preached on it last week. He says of these teachers, they profess to know God, but deny him by their works. And they're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So the false teachers, they're professing to know the true God, but they're teaching falsehood. And they are denying God by their works. Teachers who teach the true gospel 
you must honor God with your works. Your life has to show that your teaching is the real deal and is the real gospel, the gospel that has the power to change people. That is why you must model good works for your students. The second command is in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. To go through those words quickly, to teach with integrity just means to have pure motives in your teaching. You're not doing it to get rich. You're not doing it to get famous. You're not doing it to get honor from your students. You just want to see your students grow in Christ, and you want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful service. There's not mixed motives in what you're doing. And that's contrary to the false teachers. If you look back in chapter 1 at verse 11, those teachers needed to be silenced. And toward the end of the verse, it says, they are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They're not teaching with pure motives. They're teaching for shameful gain. True teachers must teach with pure motives. It says after that dignity, which just means that you need to be respectful, respectable in the way that you conduct yourself as you are teaching. There are all sorts of gimmicks and unsavory moves that you can try to pull that can build a crowd in the short term, but usually lose them in the long term. You've seen these things on TV. Sometimes you see them in debates on TV. A lot of times you can recognize them. Oh, that's the, that insult was disgusting, right? That wasn't respectable. We can't do those kind of things as we are teaching. We have to teach with respectability. The opposite is the false teachers who in chapter 1, verse 16 are called detestable. They're not respectable, but they're detestable. And lastly, we show in our teaching sound speech that cannot be condemned. That word sound comes back again. It's used twice in chapter one, and it's used once here in chapter two that we already saw. Again, it means healthy. It means reliable. It means that the words you are giving them are not your opinions, but are the sound, reliable words from the book. Your students don't need to know what you think about things. Your students don't need to know your political opinions. Your students don't need to know your opinion about this controversial issue or that controversial issue. They need to know what this book says because you need to show them to build their lives on this book. So you got to give them sound, reliable words. And the only way you can do that is to teach them what is taught in this book. Teach them to build their lives on the message of Jesus, which is sound and reliable. So we teach with pure motives, we do it respectably, with dignity, and we give them sound words, truth from the scripture. Now, if we do that, imagine what would happen. If, uh, if Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you and revile you and utter all sorts of things against you falsely on my account, right? You are blessed when people make up lies about you because you're a Christian. That's what Jesus says. And he says to expect it, right? If they spoke that way about him, they'll speak that way about us too. If you're a Christian, you should expect people to say slanderous things about you because you're a Christian, because you follow Jesus. One of those things that is leveled against the church today is the idea of hate. We're called a hateful people. We teach with love Jesus' good ways because we believe they're good for people. We believe that people who turn from their sin and follow his ways again will find blessing in his ways. And out of love, we teach a message that we know we will be reviled for teaching. And yet, it will be said by some, those people are hateful. What they teach is hateful because we don't teach what they want us to teach. And I know I don't have to tell most of you that. Most of you have experienced that. You know what that is like. 
Well, imagine if someone heard those kind of words about us. They heard that those Baptists that meet on Sunset Boulevard, they're a hateful people. But for some reason or another, they wandered into our church one day anyhow, and they sat down at one of your Sunday school classes. And what they found was, with the dignified gentleness, you opened up the Bible and you showed people what the good new life in Jesus looks like. You did it with pure motives. You did it with integrity, dignity. You gave them sound words that even if counterintuitive, it was clear that they would be reliable for life. You didn't tell them your opinion, but you told them what the word said. And they would just sit there and say, well, this, that's not what I was told to expect here. And then they leave and they come back the next week. They go to a different class. Same thing again, sound teaching from a respectable, dignified person. And then a third week in a third class, they experience the same thing. Eventually, if they are seeking truth, they're going to have to be honest and say, these people are nothing like I was told they were like. These are not the hate-filled, but they're so warm. They're so loving. Their motives are so pure in what they do, right? That is why verse 8 ends the way it does. If we teach like this, it says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. If we teach like that, no matter what they've heard about us, when they come in and taste what we have, when they feast on the word that we feast on, they will taste and see that it is good. And if they want to say something bad about us, they'll have to make it up. They'll have to make up a lie about us. And that's what Paul wants for us here. He wants us to teach in such a way that if somebody wanted to speak against us, they would have to make up a false charge because there's nothing true that could be said against us. How do you do that? You teach with integrity, pure motives. You teach with dignity. You give them sound words from the Bible. You help people in the good new life that comes with Jesus' ways. You do that, and no one will have a true accusation to bring against you. Opponents will one day be put to shame. So that's 7 and 8. We'll move on to verse 15 now. Teachers, verse 15 is meant to embolden you with the authority that comes with God's word. These are strong words. Teachers receive them. <clears throat> Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus was in kind of a fix, really. He had to teach somewhere between 10 and 20 churches probably on the island of Crete, teach them all, but he didn't have any positional authority to teach from. Now, Paul was an apostle. If he wanted to fix things in a church, all he had to do was show up and everybody would do what he said because he was an apostle. And some men were being elevated to the role of pastor or elder or shepherd in the church, and those people had positional authority in the church as well. Titus had none of these things. He was just Paul's apprentice and delegate. So when he stood up to teach, it would be easy for people to look down on him because he was probably young. It would be easy for people to look down on him because he didn't have the stamp of apostle, you know, sent one of God or pastor in the church. He was just a regular guy teaching the Bible. So a lot of times people didn't respect what he had to say. And yet... Paul tells him to declare this message, to say it with all authority, even though he probably has no positional authority whatsoever, and to let no one disregard him. Why would he tell him that? 
Well, the reason he tells him that is because Titus himself has no positional authority, but the message he is proclaiming has authority over every soul who hears it. The written words of the apostles come with the authority of God's word. The Old Testament that Titus taught from came with the authority of God's word. And so, though he had no positional authority himself, the words he was reading, everyone who heard them was obligated to do what they said. And so this guy with no authority in and of himself, no reason that these people who were older than him should listen to him was to get up there and boldly say this truth because there was authority in the written words that he was proclaiming. I say all that because you who are teachers are sometimes in the same position. I know what it's like to teach the Bible when you don't have that stamp of, of pastor on you. And you have to do a lot more work to earn credibility with your students. It's not assumed that you have it when you walk in the room. It's a much more difficult job, if I'm honest. And you may have a student who doesn't like what you have to say, and they would feel more free to speak against you than they might feel to speak against someone who has more positional authority. And sometimes you'd be put in a tight spot because of that. Why is it that in that kind of a situation, when really you're, you're, you're just with peers in the room, you don't have any positional authority in the room, except to kind of guide the class a little bit, why is it in that room you can declare things, let no one disregard you and speak with authority? Why is it you can do that? It's because the book that you are reading from has all authority in the world. It's because whatever this book says, everyone who hears it is obligated to do it. You are coming with a message that has authority. You may not have authority yourself, but the message you are proclaiming does have authority. This would be sort of like sailors on a boat. Let's say there's a room full of sailors on a boat and they're all the same rank, so they're all peers. And the captain comes by and pulls one sailor out. He says, sailor, come and walk with me. We'll walk the deck together. And they walk together and the captain begins to explain, uh, we're shorter on sailors now. We need to go from three eight-hour shifts today to two 12-hour shifts today. So everybody's gonna work for 12 hours and rest for 12 hours. And in addition to this, we're short-staffed in the kitchen, and so some of the maintenance workers need to move into the kitchen. Now, I have to get back to the bridge. Sailor, I need you to go and tell all of the other sailors my words. And so the sailor now has the difficult job of going before his peers and saying, okay, everybody, here's what we're going to do. Now, that's awkward. He doesn't have any authority over these guys. Why is it that they would listen to him? It's because his message comes from the captain. His message comes with authority. And so if the sailors get a little unruly and they say, whoa, 12-hour shifts, we want eight-hour shifts. We don't want to do that. All he's got to say is, well, the captain says, and just go into what the captain said, right? That's his source of authority. When he needs to appeal to authority, all he's got to say is, well, what the captain wants is, or well, what the captain says is, that's where his authority comes from. In the same way, you are sometimes in a tight spot when you're teaching Sunday school, when you're mentoring somebody. You can be going through the book of Ephesians and get to that famous passage, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord and sit down and get ready to speak it. And two new couples walk into the class and you have no idea what they believe and if they are going to receive a controversial message like that well. What do you do in that situation? 
Same thing the sailor does. You say, well, here's what the captain says. You appeal to the book. You take yourself out of it. You say, well, this is what it says. And when they begin to say, oh, I I don't like that. I I, I want it to be, you say, well, here's what the book says. Here's what the book says. Well, let's look at this verse. Let's, Let's look at this other verse. Let's read it together and see what it says. Because your authority is in the words of this open book. One way you can live that out. Now, I've sat in on all of our Sunday school classes here, and all of you are endeavoring to find out what the text says and declare it to your class. You're all doing this, so I commend all of you in that. One way you can lean on the authority of that word is to have your students look at the open book as much as possible. Do you notice how many times when I'm preaching, I say, look at verse 16, look at verse eight. Let's look at verse seven together. Let's look at the middle word in this verse. I have you looking down at the book all the time. I'm gonna give that to you as an example of what you can do in your Sunday school class. When you do that, you're removed from the equation. You're not standing between them and the word of God. They are reading it for themselves. And if you can endeavor not to just tell them what the word says, but show them that the word says it, well, then they don't have any argument back against you. Their argument is with the Lord God himself because you've shown them that it says it right there in the word. Your goal should be for your students to leave the class looking at the book saying, yep, it says that. Yep, it says exactly what he said. You need to make all the connections to show them that the book says exactly what you're saying, well, exactly what you're claiming that it says. If you can do that, you will be teaching with authority because this book holds authority. So declare it. When you have to correct, correct. Remember the words from last week, correct with gentleness, but when you have to do it, do it with all authority. And don't let them disregard you because you're their peer as you teach them. No, you're giving them a message that everyone who hears it is obligated to do it. So that's what we have in these words here today, teachers. If if we can remember why we are here, we're here to teach people what the Christian life looks like from the Bible. If we can remember to model that life ourselves, if we can remember in our teaching to do it with pure motives and to do it in a respectable way with our speech and to focus as much as we can on the gospel of Jesus, and if we can point them to that sound doctrine so they can read it themselves and it has authority. Church, just imagine what a whole education wing full of classes where that is happening. What could happen in a church like that? That's how valuable I want you to see your work is. Those of you that are looking into mentoring others, I want you to see how valuable it can be in that person's life to have the life-giving words of God made clear to them week after week. That's what your role is, teachers, in building a sound and healthy church here. Teach God's word. Show us how to live the Christian life and declare the words of this book with authority. Let's pray together.